0: If you'll take your Bible, let's, uh, let's do this first. Let's take our Bible and let's turn to Exodus chapter 19. All right? Let's do that first. Exodus chapter 19. We've been working through the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, I don't think I'm exaggerating by saying this. We have come to the part that is probably the most chilling part in all of the Bible. In Matthew's Gospel chapter 7, where you have, Jesus said, many use the word many, many are going to come on that day, on the day of judgment. And they're going to say, didn't we do this? Didn't we do this? Didn't we do this? Didn't we do this? All ministry. And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Some of the most chilling words in all of the Bible. And we're going to be looking at them this Wednesday night. And I'd love to, if you can be here, I'd love for you to be here as we go over this. because again, it's. A, Really, really interesting passages and sobering passages. If you can't make it, be sure to catch it on Facebook Live, but um, we'd like for you to be here. Exodus chapter 19. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 as we continue through the book of Exodus. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came, called the elders of the people, and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the peoples answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. This is God's word. You'll see a picture of one of our local congregations here in town, Kings Baptist, and I'd like for us to pray for them as we pray for ourselves today. Our Father, your church in every generation has faced challenges from the culture around us. Uh, Oftentimes, we have experienced the fact that the church is not viewed as something beautiful and lovely and helpful. And even today we're seeing the same thing. We're seeing many churches that are slipping into a ditch theologically and doctrinally. And so Lord, we want to pray for King's Baptists. We want to pray that today they may sing different songs and preach from a different text, but they're opening the same scriptures, and you are speaking today. Through your word, by your spirit. And so, Lord, may the people at Kings be helped and encouraged, strengthened into their faith. And may the same be for us. May we remain as a light in this community. Uh, May may you use each congregation in this town uh, to be uh, making you known. Not, Not sowing confusion, but bringing you, making you known. And so we pray this. For the sake of Christ who redeemed us, amen. This May uh, this May of this year, Catherine and I will, will celebrate 42 years of marriage. Back uh, a few years ago when we celebrated 35 years, uh, our daughter encouraged us to, um, to have a vow renewal service. Now, many, many in this congregation have done that same thing, had a vow renewal. And so um, our daughter, Candy, officiated, uh, Ted was there, our three grandchildren were there, and a photographer. That was all. Just just the way we wanted it. Just family and a photographer to kind of capture the moment. And, um, you know, I don't, have, don't know how to explain this other than it was just a special time. I, I'm, I have a picture in my office at home uh, of Catherine and I looking at each other. And that moment somebody captured the shot, you know, and I look at that often and remember that day. It was a day that we We reflected back on the past, we reflected on the present, and we looked forward, by God's grace, to the future. And I mention that to you today because many Bible commentators have suggested that Exodus chapter 19, the verses that we just read, are very similar to a vow renewal service, very similar to what we... You know it has a similarity to it today in a, in a with a married couple renewing their vows. We have here in chapter nineteen very similar a vow renewal uh, you 'll see if, if you look for it you 'll see God speaking about the past and the present and the future for his people and in in verse four you 'll notice the past okay let 's just look at that for just a moment before we get started here. You yourselves have seen what I, this is God speaking, what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. All past tense language, past. Now what, we're, what we've been looking at in the book of Exodus, a number of things, but one of the things that's been standing out is the way Exodus describes God's salvation. In, in Exodus, you don't see people walking an aisle or you know, coming forward in a service, that sort of thing. You don't see that. Now I'm not saying anything wrong with that. But you don't see that in the book of Exodus. What you see is God liberating his people from the things that enslave them, that they might come and serve him. And now that I've been you know, looking at Exodus really closely with you for the last few weeks, I would have to say that is a great definition of God's salvation. It's God himself, mighty to save, liberating us from the things that enslave us. We are slavable people. We really are. There's things that entrap us, enslave us, we can't get away from. We need help outside of ourselves. That's what God does in the book of Exodus. His salvation. And We see it in verse 4 as he speaks about the past. He says, I bore you. I carried you. Now, that verse is so beautiful. That I, I struggle this week to think of how can I, how can I explain verse four in a way that we can in, enjoy it? you know it's maybe something to think about. Well, uh, I, I run across this story of, of Hannah and Stuart. Hannah and Stuart uh, met each other in Sunday school. Hannah was fifteen years old, Stuart was seventeen, and they they started liking each other. She found him attracted, he found her attractive, and the more they got to know each other, they finally got to where they, they went out on a date, and that date led to another date, and, and then they fell in love, and then they got engaged. And about a month before their marriage, Hannah was in a horrible traffic accident. It didn't take her life, but it broke her in many ways. Uh... It was so bad that it it appeared that the wedding was going to have to be put off. But they said, no, we're not not going to put this off. We're going to go through it. And so I ran across some pictures of this I want you to see. The first one is Hannah in a wheelchair. Her dad is rolling her through a grove of trees. The next picture, you'll see uh, Stuart. He sees her, and he's coming. He's coming toward her. Next picture, he comes and he picks her up. In the final picture, he carries her. Hannah was carried. She was being bore. Now, just let me ask you a question. Think about it. What, what exactly did Hannah contribute to this? Well, she trusted Stuart. She trusted him. She, she entrusted herself to Stuart. He come to carry her. She didn't contribute anything to this except to just trust and rest in Stuart's arms. What God is saying in verse 4, the God who is mighty to save, he says, I carried you. I carried you. I carried you out. And I carried you to myself. That is a beautiful picture of biblical salvation. Let me ask you, what did the Israelites contribute to their salvation? They trusted God. He carried them. He heard their cry. And he came and he liberated them. He rescued them. He said, I carried you. I bore you on eagle's wings. They were carried out and carried to. And friend, that is still God's salvation today. And so, that's why we see what is spoken in verse 5. Look at verse 5 with me. It says... Now, therefore. Now, just stop there for a moment and notice. What, he, what have we moved from? We've moved from the past to the present. Now. He, 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 he spends some time reminding them about the past, of how he bore them on eagle's wings and brought them to himself. Now, now, present. Now, therefore. Now, you remember what the word therefore means. It means, it's God saying, since I have done this for you, verse four, since I have done this for you, now, now what's that mean? God is saying in verse five, therefore, now that I have done this for you, you have identity, a command, and a purpose. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Now that I have done this for you, Now that I have graced you, you didn't contribute anything to this except to trust me. And now that I have done this for you, therefore you have an identity, you have a command, and you have a purpose. Let's look at it. First, you have an identity. Look at verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, we'll get to that part in a moment and keep my covenant. Notice this you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. According to the New York Times, the biggest paper in the world, according to the New York Times, the year of 2015 was, quote, the year we obsessed over identity. Maybe you've noticed this. Maybe. Over the last few years, a lot of talk about identity. I mean, when I grew up, you know, let's say the 60s, when I, when I grew up, I, n- I never heard the word identity. I mean, it's just, nobody was talking about their identity or their identity being fragile or trying to find an identity or build an identity. I wasn't hearing any of that. But in 2015, that became, according to the New York Times, the year that we obsessed over it. And I believe that's accurate. Now, identity is not an easy thing to define. We're going to try in a minute, but it's not easy to define. So I thought maybe maybe this would help us to understand a bit about identity. Last year, there was a spike in high-profile suicides in our country. number of names, I won't go into the names, but a number of people, high-profile, on television, uh, in fashion, in music, uh, who took their lives. Now, when that happens, I'm just going to, you, you think about this. I know what I do. when I, When I hear about it, I usually think, didn't they know how good they were? I mean, didn't they they know how great an actor they were? Didn't they know how great they sang? Didn't they know how good they played an instrument? Didn't they know that they were at the top of the heat? Didn't they know how talented they were? Because I'm thinking if they knew, they would have never taken their lives. Didn't they know? And I thought, you know, perhaps they do know, but that wasn't enough. I mean, perhaps they realized they were at the top of their game. Perhaps they realized that they were really, really good, maybe even the best. Perhaps they knew that, but perhaps it wasn't enough. And perhaps it wasn't enough because of depression. See, depression often plays a huge role when it comes to someone taking their life. Dr. Elaine Ehrenberg wrote the book, The Weariness of the Self. And she explored why depression has become the most diagnosed mental disorder in all of the world. And here's what she, after, after years of study, after years of studying the history of depression and its, and its correlation with suicide, she said this. It comes down because of feelings of inadequacy. Feelings of inadequacy. In other words, the person who is at the top of the heap The person who is successful, they've been driven and they've reached it. Perhaps the story which they told themselves was not enough. They kept telling themselves, I'm really good. I'm the best. I'm achieving. But perhaps the story that they was telling themselves was not enough. Or perhaps the story society told them about themselves was not enough. So I ran across, I hope, what will be a a helpful definition of identity. I want you to see it. Identity is the sum of everything that pertains to us and shapes us. Identity is that sense of being and self-understanding that frames our actions, communicates to others who we are, and sets the agenda for our actions. Identity drives life. It provides the energy and motivation for all else. If you know who you are, you know what you must do. And if your identity is healthy, It provides a confidence that enables action. There's a lot there, okay? But you do at least see this. Our identity is really important. That that we understand who we are. I mean, there's many people in this world struggling. Uh, Many college students are struggling desperately, trying to figure out, who am I? Who am I? What am I? What am I here for? And here's the question that you cannot dismiss. None of us in this room can dismiss this question. Will you construct your own identity or will your creator? That's really what it comes down to. Will you create or construct your own identity or will your creator give you an identity? Why do I say it that way? The Bible seeks to tell us who God says we are and who we should be. And how we fit in God's purposes and how we should live because of our God-given identity. I mean, really, that's one of, the, one of the lenses you can look at the Bible and say, what is the Bible about? It's about God telling you who you are and what you should be and how you should live because of your God-given identity. That's one way of understanding the Bible. Maybe this will help. Um, this is not an expensive vase Bullock county vase okay <laughs> it's not expensive it's not expensive but it is nice it has some etched glass it's nice you put some flowers in this it'd be attractive i use this to show that we we as human beings like to see ourselves and present ourselves as a beautiful vase we're up on the mantle and we want the world to say isn't she beautiful Isn't he so successful? Isn't she so talented? Isn't he great? That's that's what we desire. We we want to be the vase on the mantle that draws all the attention and the attraction. People think we're beautiful. But is that true? Is that true? It's not what the Bible says. What the Bible says is we are earthen vessels. Not beautiful vases, but earthen vessels vessels. Now, what that really is, is not a styrofoam cup, but I just use this for an example. The earthen vessel would be like a clay pot that has some cracks and you can even see through it. You know, if you were to put a light inside of it, you'd see the light coming out. You see. The truth is, God, God says you are an earthen vessel. In fact, the psalmist says he has compassion on us because he knows we are but dust. He doesn't see us as a vase. We're earthen vessels. But you say, that, that's not very encouraging. I mean, that's not, that's not an identity builder. Oh, but wait. You say, the world wants this. The world wants to see me successful. No cracks, no blemishes, no weaknesses. They want to see me as a vase. Well, man, surely people are going to want this. Yeah, okay. Until, until, let's say I take $50,000 worth of bills and I stuff them inside this cup. And there's cracks in it and you can see through. And you can see, oh my goodness, there's a treasure inside that. Which one are you going to pick then? See, what the scriptures tell us is this. We're not a beautiful vase. We are earthen vessels. And what makes all the difference is what dwells inside of us. The treasure inside of us. Jesus, his spirit living inside of us. He is what gives us value and meaning. He's what turns this earthen vessel into something of beauty. Why? Because he shines through us. No, it's not, a, it's not a vase. It's an earthen vessel. And because we see this, maybe now we're ready to look closely at verse 5. Look at it closely with me. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Now, here's identity, okay? We're looking at identity. First off, he says, I want you to notice the phrase, all the earth is mine. That's God saying, Grand Canyon, that's mine. All the gold in South Africa, that's all mine. Everything's mine. I own it all. You see, the point here is this. A king in his domain actually owns everything, but a king has his treasured possession. He owns everything, but he has this special treasure that he keeps that's special to him. I mean, think about it this way say, God forbid, house on fire, and you've only got a few minutes to grab what you feel is most important. You don't go to the cupboard. I'm sure you don't go to the cupboard and say, got to get those plastics, forks, and spoons. <laughs> you, don't, you don't run to the bathroom and go, get all the toilet paper, honey. You <laughs> don't do that, do you? No. No, you, you get your treasured possessions, right? If you've got time at all, You run and you find those things that mean the most to you. What your grandfather gave you, your grandmother, somebody in your family gave you this treasured possession. You run and you get that. See, what we're seeing here, God is telling Israel, whatever your current struggles are, whatever you may feel about yourself, if you are in Christ, you are God's treasure. What you should hear here is this. Your identity is the most important being in all of the universe is saying to you, you are what means the most to me. That's what we should hear here. Are you hearing that? See, that will fix, that will fix your shattered, fragile identity. It will. It's designed to do that. What God says about you. Let God construct your identity, not the world, not society, not the culture, God is giving. He's saying, now that I've saved you, now that I bore you, now that I carried you to myself, let me give you an identity. But then secondly, he gives them a command. Look at verse 5 again. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be. Now, you're going you're to need to listen really closely here. Okay? First thing I want you to notice what God has done for us is the basis for what he expects from us. Okay? That's therefore. That's the therefore. Since I've done this for you, this is what I expect of you. Now, therefore. This is the first place in the Bible that we come across the expression of keeping my covenant. What is a covenant? A covenant is an agreement. Uh, in our culture, marriage has become more of a contract when actually it is to be a covenant, an agreement, a promise. Okay? See, up to this point, now I want you to follow me, real careful follow. Up to this point, what was mainly required of the Israelites was faith and trust in God's promise. In other words, they didn't contribute a thing, not contributing a thing, just trust me and God comes and carries them out. But because he has carried them out, because he has brought them to himself, because he has made them part of his family and kingdom, verse 5 he said, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant. Now what is God saying here? And this is where we need to be extra careful. Because you might might change the narrative here and you might go, oh, 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 I see if you will. Okay, if I will, the only way I'm going to... The only way I could get into God's family is if, if I keep his rules and keep his commandments. Is that, is that the narrative here? No. L- listen. What is God saying here? First, this statement in verse 5 was made to people who were already saved. Listen. This statement was made to people who were already saved. Verse 4. I carried you out. I bore you out. It was by grace. You didn't contribute anything. You trusted. This This whole idea of if you will keep my commandments, if you'll obey me, it's being spoken to people who were already saved. Don't change the narrative and think, I've got to do these things in order for him to accept me. No, no. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ. The Israelites have already been delivered from bondage and redeemed by the blood of the Passover lamb. Remember that, right? You go back to chapter 12. They, they, they trusted God. Believe. You put the blood on the doorpost. We'll be saved. We won't die. You see, what you should see here is first God rescues us from sin, then teaches us how to live for his glory. Save first, teaches us how to live next. He saves us in Christ before he calls us to live for Christ. so important. so important that we understand this. But secondly, he's also saying something else that we need to pick up on here. He's not calling for perfectionism. So you might read verse 5 and go, If you will keep my rules, you'll obey if you do that. But you've got to be perfect. Oh, I'm telling you, I'm telling you. It is so easy to read that in there. Just read it in and just assume that it means perfection. And you might think, well, oh, I can never do that. Is it perfection that God is calling for? Hey, listen. We're going to find out in chapter 34 of Exodus something beautiful about God. But let's just go ahead and open the package right now. When Moses says to God, I want to see your glory. God says, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. But I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll walk by and you'll see my hinder parts. And the hinder parts were this, that he forgives trespasses and sins. Now think with me. If God is calling for perfection here in verse 5, why would he say later, I'm a God who forgives trespasses and sins. It couldn't be anything other than He anticipated that His beloved people would fail. Secondly, He will go on to establish a sacrificial system where sacrifices and offerings will be made for sin and failure, all of which to deal with our failure. And so, God is not calling for perfectionism, He's not calling for work salvation. No. What he is calling for, verse 5, is about a trajectory of the heart that embraces the responsibilities and rules of belonging to God's family and living out our identity. It's simply this. God says, you're part of my family. You've been graced in. Now, here's how you live. And the idea should be we should be so overwhelmed and like, what? I'm in? By <laughs> grace? Me? I'm in the family of God? I am your treasured possession? Tell me what to do. Tell me how to live. That's what God is doing. Let's be clear. Access to God is granted as a gift of grace. God's grace, not our actions, is the foundation for our identity. However, access to God is always transformative. Access to God is always transformative. In other words, God's grace will not leave us the way we was. Access to God will bring about transformation. Therefore, who we are will show up in what we do. If we are truly his, it will show up in what we do, how we speak to others, how we treat others, how we handle our money, how we handle our time. It will show up. So God says, therefore, since I have carried you, I bore you out, you have an identity. Secondly, therefore, you have a command. And finally, in verse six, a purpose. And you shall be, notice future, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Notice identity leads to responsibility, which leads to purpose. Now, the Bible tells us that we are made in the image of God. Remember earlier when we, um, remember earlier when we had our call to worship and we, we read where that our tongue can be so confusing. We, we, we can bless God with this tongue, and then the same tongue, curse people who were made in the likeness of God, or another way of saying, it, in the image of God. Just, just so you'll know, you, you might you might look at the oh, that, that person was so nasty. They were so mean. They were so rude. They were this. They were that, and 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 then you just go at them, you know. Or what God is saying is, even though even though they're a mess, they were created in the image of God. You are going to run into some people this week that you are you're going to think, oh my goodness, I don't want nothing to do with you. I don't want to talk to you. They were made in the image of God. What does that mean? Does it mean for us to be made in the image of God? Well, it means at least least this. One, that we are connected to God. That we are created for a relation to God. That we were made to represent God. That we are accountable to God. Fundamentally, to be created in the image of God is about participation with God. It's about our lives being in participation with what God is doing in the world. So we were made, created in the image of God. But when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, the image was shattered. It was not destroyed, but it was indeed shattered scripture teaches us that we you me we were born in sin and that the image of God in us is shattered and we do not fulfill the design of our creator no matter no matter listen no matter how many times we try to look like the vase or no matter how many times we try to fill in the holes and the and the gaps and the cracks see when we do when we do that when we do that we're, try, we're trying to cover up our weakness. What we're doing, we're not allowing the power of God to be seen us. We can't fix us. The image is shattered. And what we see in verse 6, and I want you to see this as we begin to turn for home. Look at verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What is God doing here? Now listen, God already knows that his image within his people have been shattered. But what he's doing here, in, in essence, God is remaking his people as the functioning image of him on earth. God's saying, okay, I know there's been a mess. <laughs> Things have been a mess up until now. <laughs> but now we're going to restart. And here's how you're going to participate with me. Now, we know they failed, okay? We're going to get to that in just a second. They failed. But let's at least look and see what the purpose was. It says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. What does that mean? It means that every single person in God's kingdom was called to serve and worship God. Everyone. They were a a people with a special closeness to God, therefore a special calling from God. Why? They, they They were God's treasure. You you listen, if you are in Christ, you have a special closeness to God that the average person in this world does not. You are his treasure. You have a special closeness to God. Therefore, you have a special calling from God. You are to represent him in this world. So, they were kingdom of priests, but they were a holy nation. What does that mean? Well, that we're called to be distinct, set apart, categorically different than the world around us. But Israel failed at their purpose. All of which God is telling them, He's giving them an identity, he's giving them a command, he's saying, here's your purpose. They failed. And rather than making God known, they only conveyed confusion. Listen, if you go out of here this week and you live as if Christ is not your Lord, you live against God's design, yet you say you're one of his, you will sow confusion in this world. And that's not what we're called for. We're we're not to be people of darkness, people of light. Not not people of confusion, people of order, people of design, people of purpose. Israel failed, but there was one who did succeed. In Colossians chapter 1, you'll see this verse. He, Jesus, is the invisible or the image of the invisible God. Just those few little words mean so much. It means this. Israel failed. You failed. I failed. But Jesus did not fail. Jesus was the perfect representation of God. He obeyed the Father perfectly. He did not sow confusion. He sowed beauty and truth and grace. He did not fail. We failed. We are not the hero. Jesus is the hero. So what does that mean for us? What does it mean for Jesus to perfectly represent the Father, be a a perfect image of God. What does that mean for us? Well, think about it this way. In the Bible, it uses a lot of imagery to speak about the relationship between Jesus and his church. Sometimes it uses the imagery of a shepherd and sheep, but it also uses this imagery of Jesus as the bridegroom and the church as his bride. Jesus came to gather a bride, his church. So so picture that with me. Jesus came to, to gather a bride. He came to look for and gather a bride. But wait a minute. We were not a lovely bride that was being rolled through a grove of trees, were we? Oh, no. It wasn't like Jesus said, oh, my, look at her. Oh, my, what a beauty. No. I mean, Stuart saw that in Hannah. What a beautiful bride, but not us. No, in in fact, there was nothing lovely about us. Why? Because the Bible said that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were not lovely. We weren't beautiful. We were enemies. We were enemies of the living God. We were, the Scripture says, alienated from God. We were not lovely. We were enemies, alienated. Yet, in spite of that, in his grace, he came to us and he carried us. Isaiah said, he bore our iniquities. He took everything sinful in us. He took all of our cracks, all of our brokenness, all our confused identity. He took it all upon himself. He bore us. He carried us. He carried us and reconciled us. To God, the hero, the one who represented the perfect image of God. What we could not do, he did for us. And he gives us his spirit to work in us, to remake and restore us to the functioning image of God. That's the work that's going on in you and me. From the day that you came to saving faith in Christ there's been a work going on you in you to remake you and restore you to reflect the image of God to represent him well in this world and therefore he gives not to Israel but to his church the same task in 1st Peter chapter 2 and we'll close with this notice are these words familiar are these words familiar But you, you who, it's not Israel, the church, the called out ones, those redeemed by the blood of Christ, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What we are means what, what, what all of this means as we close. We, 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 are, we are what means the most to our Heavenly Father. Don't forget that this week. We are what means. The church. We are what means the most to our Heavenly Father. Therefore, he says, Demonstrate who you are by what you do. In other words, be obedient. He calls us to obey so that we will represent him well. We are his people. And what we do will indicate who we are, and who we are will be indicated by what we do. And finally, your purpose this week, in fact, for all of your days, all the days you have left, all the days I have left, our purpose is to make him known, is to proclaim his excellencies. And you can do that because he's given you his spirit. The hero has given you his spirit. What you can never do on your own, you're empowered to do by his spirit. So let's go do it.